0: Welcome to the Core AM 5 Pearls podcast, bringing you high-yield evidence-based pearls. I'm Dr. Shreya Trivedi, an internist at BIDMC.
1: I'm Dr. Aaron Dunn, a resident at BIDMC. On today's 5 Pearl episode, we're talking about all things pacemakers and ICD.
0: Let's get started with the pearls we'll be covering today. Test yourself by pausing after each of the five questions. Remember, the more you test yourself, the deeper your learning gains.
1: Pearl 1 pacemaker and ICD function and indication.
0: What are the different types of implantable pacemakers and defibrillators? What's their function, and who is it indicated for?
1: Pearl 2, recognizing device type.
0: How do you tell what type of implantable cardiac device your patient has?
1: PEARL 3. Device Interrogation.
0: What exactly is a device interrogation, and when should you consult electrophysiology for a patient who has an implantable device?
1: PEARL 4. Bacteremia.
0: How do you approach a patient who has a bloodstream infection but also has an implantable cardiac device?
1: Pearl 5, end-of-life care.
0: How do you approach end-of-life with a patient who has a pacemaker, and how do those conversations differ? All right, we have a lot of good ground to cover. So let's first start off with pacemakers before we get to defibrillators or ICDs. So first off, who needs a pacemaker, and what do pacemakers actually do?
1: We sat down with Dr. Joshua Cooper, an electrophysiologist from Temple University, does a great job of breaking things down. He helped us develop a framework to think through pacemakers in three big buckets.
2: A pacemaker is an electronic device that's implanted in the body and its goal primarily is to prevent the heart from falling below a certain rate from going too slow. Uh, The secondary feature of pacemakers is to coordinate chambers, uh, in particular the top and bottom half of the heart to make sure the atria and the ventricles are working in timing in sync with each other. And then the third thing that a pacemaker can do is to coordinate the walls of the ventricles to squeeze in a simultaneous way.
0: Right. So just like there's three main things that pacemakers do, there's three main types too. And what I found really helpful is that thinking about the number of pacing leads and where that location is can really help us then understand what that pacemaker does.
3: The first type is a single chamber device. That means that there's a single wire that goes into the right ventricle. And the only job of the pacemaker in that case is to ask the question, you know, is the ventricle beating below a certain rate? And if it is, it will, it will pace.
1: That's Dr. Andy Locke, an electrophysiologist at BIDMC and instructor at Harvard Medical School.
3: The second type of pacemaker system is a dual chamber pacemaker. That pacemaker has a wire that goes into the right atrium and then a second wire that goes into the right ventricle. This system, same thing. It looks at the heart rate, and it says if the heart rate drops below a certain point, it will kick on and start pacing the heart. But the bonus of this system, because there's a wire in the atria and the ventricle, is that the pacemaker can time that atrial contraction with the ventricular contraction. Okay, so that can create AV synchrony.
1: The last type of pacemaker, called cardiac resynchronization therapy, also known as biventricular pacing, is a fancy way of saying we're going to stimulate both ventricles to contract at the same time. And to do that, there are actually three leads, one lead in the right atrium, one in the right ventricle, and then one in the coronary sinus.
0: You know, Aaron, I don't know about you, but I kind of find it annoying that there's something called a dual chamber, which is two leads as, as one would you know guess. But then there's cardiac resynchronization therapy, CRT, which is also called biventricular pacing, but that's actually three leads.
1: Yeah. Even, even though that, that bi-prefect suggests otherwise.
0: Yeah. And I'm glad we're calling it out so we then we can kind of keep it straight. So dual chamber pacing is two leads and biventricular pacing refers to cardiac resynchronization therapy, which is actually three leads, annoyingly. <laughs> um, but anyways, now that, we, uh, now that we covered those types and got some of the nomenclature right, I guess the next question is, which patients are pacemakers most helpful in?
3: there are really two main indications for pacing. One indication is sinus node dysfunction. The other indication is atrioventricular or AV conduction disease. The sinus node, again, is a structure in the right atrium that sets the heart rate. And over time, there's going to be a variety of reasons why someone develops sinus node dysfunction. The most common cause is just through aging and fibrosis. The sinus node stops working well. And what that can look like is patients can come in with sinus bradycardia, they can come in with a junctional rhythm, they can have intermittent sinus node dysfunction. So one day they're fine, they can have a pause, they can feel what's called chronotropic incompetence. They can feel like they can't get their heart rate as high as they want their heart rate to be when they exercise or they walk, so they feel short of breath.
4: This is your 60 odd-year-old um, young uh, you know, relatively young patient who basically says, Hey, I had a syncope, but then over the last three months, I've noticed that as I exercise, I get more and more tired. I'm unable to increment my heart rate.
0: That's Dr. Kamala Tamarisa, an electrophysiologist at Texas Cardiac Arrhythmia Institute. In addition to that, chronotropic incompetence or symptomatic sinus pauses, the other thing that falls into that sinus node umbrella is brady syndrome.
3: If you have a patient that has tachy-brady syndrome, by definition, they have sinus node dysfunction because that's the bradycardic part of it.
4: So this is your patient with AFib where they go at a rate of 120s, 190s. And when they convert from AFib or in sinus, their heart rate drops to 50s and 40s. And what do you do? You need to rate control, but then you have bradycardia on one end.
0: Yeah, what do you do? put a pacemaker in that. And you know, I'm glad we're covering the indications because I recently had a patient whose notes kept saying AFib status pacemaker, AFib status pacemaker and made me go, wait a minute, that's not why pacemakers are indicated.
1: Did it, did it end up being Brady syndrome?
0: Yep. Confirmed after digging through a bunch of cardiology notes and made sure that it was the change in notes uh, moving forward.
1: <laughs> so takeaway is yeah, patients with AFib may get a pacemaker but it's not actually from the afib it's really because of sinus node
0: dysfunction right so now with that clarified let's move on to the second big indication for pacemakers av dysfunction
1: i don't know about you shreya but when i think of av dysfunction i always remember all these things we get tested for on the boards the mobits type 1 type 2 squiggles in my head <laughs>
4: yeah same the keywords Every time I tell people the keywords are symptomatic, but that changes the symptoms pretty much um, are not too relevant if you have a complete heart block without a reversible cause or high-grade AV block with Mobitz type 2.
1: So with symptomatic or high-degree AV dysfunction, we're going to reach for the pacemaker that has dual chamber pacing to both the atrium and the ventricles, and this is going to help that signal bypass the diseased tissue and actually get to the ventricle.
0: That makes a lot of sense. But that's dual chamber pacing. While we're thinking about the indications of different types of pacemakers, I'm curious about the ones that have three leads, right? The cardiac resynchronization or annoyingly the biventricular pacing. When do we reach for those pacemakers?
3: So there are certain times when someone's heart function is low. And some of that decreased heart function is due to electrical dyssynchrony. Dyssynchrony between when the right ventricle beats and when the left ventricle beats. The way that we know that someone is desynchronous is really looking at the surface ECG. If they have a very wide QRS, and typically it's, it's a left bundle branch block that causes electrical mechanical desynchrony, that's when um, we think about cardiac resynchronization therapy.
0: Okay, so CRT, cardiac resynchronization therapy, is going to help patients who have a low ejection fraction, less than 35% and a left bundle branch block, meaning that they probably need help synchronizing their left and right ventricle with the hope that it'll help this patient's heart failure and cardiac output.
1: This has been a lot of information. It might be a good place to stop yeah. and just do a mid-pearl recap. Pacemakers are implantable devices with three big indications. One, sinus node dysfunction, which is going to include things like symptomatic bradycardia, chronotropic incompetence, and tachybrady syndrome. And then two, AV dysfunction, especially if they're symptomatic or have that high-degree AV block. And the last indication, three, is heart failure that's due to ventricular dyssynchrony, which is going to show up as that left bundle branch block on ECG.
0: And then we also talked about what type of pacemaker it is based on the number of leads there are. So a single chamber pacemaker, that's one lead. Usually it's in the right ventricle. So it's going to help with pacing only if the ventricle goes too slow. The dual chamber pacemaker, on the other hand, can help with that too, but because there's an extra lead in the atrium, it's going to help with sick sinus syndrome and also if there's AV dysfunction. Last, we talked about CRT or biv pacing. That's three leads. There's an extra lead in the coronary sinus on the left ventricle. So it has that additional function of helping both ventricles contract at the same time.
1: Okay, let's start off by clarifying something that most people don't realize. Traditional ICDs have all the capabilities of a pacemaker and another important function.
2: A defibrillator, the primary function is to terminate a life-threatening fast arrhythmia, ventricular fibrillation or ventricular tachycardia.
0: Yep, uh, those life-threatening arrhythmias that make us sweat a a little bit, maybe a lot of it as my two-year-old son says.
1: (laughs) (laughs) To understand how those ICDs actually treat those fast rhythms, we need to understand why the fast rhythm is happening in the first place
3: the majority of vt or that you that these devices treat are reentrant arrhythmias which means somewhere in the heart there's a little scar and there's the scar is made up of surviving myocardial bundles and in infarcted myocardial bundles and because of that heterogeneity you get the electrical current gets stuck there and in the perfect situation it can cause a loop and it can re-enter on itself. And when it does that, that's when you have re-entering
1: VT.
0: And what I didn't know before this episode is that ICDs stop those scary rhythms with more than just shocks.
1: Right. So as many people know, ICDs can deliver a shock, which basically resets the heart's electrical system. But those shocks can be really painful. So most ICDs are programmed to try something else first called anti-tachycardia pacing or ATP. The only way to
3: potentially terminate that without a shock is to pace faster than that tachycardia. So um, it will pace, and eventually, as the ATP delivers pulses, it it will collide with that circuit, and it gets closer and closer and closer, and eventually the ATP will enter that circuit and cause collision in the circuit and then terminate the circuit.
0: Wow. I feel like anti-tachycardial pacing is like the competitive gunner that's like, no, I'm going to go faster. I'm going to take over that conduction system. And you know what? You're not even going to feel it or know about it. Total gunner status.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yep. ICDs are going to block that fast rhythm with anti-tachycardia pacing. And if they're able to do that, the patient's not going to feel anything. But if ATP pacing doesn't work, it will deliver a shock.
2: It's a big sudden jolt in the chest. People describe it as being kicked by a horse or being hit by a brick or a bat. Um, but it's important to point out that it's over almost before you realize it's it's almost more the shock the <laughs> the surprise of the shock uh, than any lingering discomfort and the reason that it is uncomfortable is because the electrical signal that restores a normal heartbeat also causes all the muscles of the torso to contract all at once so imagine all of your chest muscles and arm muscles
0: suddenly squeezing quickly and then relaxing. So I guess we can tell our patients that if an arrhythmia does come up, it can be painless, right, with the ATP pacing kicking in, but to also give them a heads up about what a shock might feel like to decrease that intensity of that surprise we were just talking about. I also really appreciate hearing how Dr. Cooper reassures his patients, especially if the ICD is placed for primary prevention.
2: Patients who have a defibrillator implanted generally have no arrhythmias and no shocks. A lot of the primary prevention studies that compared patients with a certain ejection fraction with or without a defibrillator, in many of those studies, only one out of 10 patients or so in a five-year follow-up period ends up even having the type of rhythm that a defibrillator would treat. That means 90% of those patients with primary prevention devices will just have it sit there as an insurance policy that they will never need, at least in that time frame. And so I reassure them that this is just there as a little guardian angel, a little ambulance walking around with them, ready to kick in if it's needed. But chances are they just won't need it for that reason if, again, it's put in in a preventative fashion.
0: Oh, I cannot wait to use that little ambulance walking around with them analogy next time I talk to a patient with an ICD, especially since what we just learned is that most patients with primary prevention ICDs will not experience shocks.
1: Shreya, I am shocked. Uh, Aaron. <laughs> Sorry. I just couldn't resist that yes.
0: one. That Actually, it was, it was good. It caught me by surprise. Um, okay. So now that we know a bunch more about ICDs, that they can basically do everything that a pacemaker can. And on top of that, they have this anti-tachycardic pacing function and can deliver shocks. Who are ICDs indicated for? I think we can cement that a bit more.
1: So the most intuitive indication is for secondary prevention. This is our patients who have ventricular tachycardia, ventricular fibrillation, or they had a cardiac arrest and we think it's because of a cardiac cause. So you want to prevent a second event in these patients.
0: Oh yeah, we do not want more VTAC, VFib. Okay, so that's secondary prevention. What about primary prevention?
1: Primary
3: prevention is patients that we know that are at risk for ventricular tachycardia, ventricular arrhythmias, but they haven't had one yet. So if someone has heart failure, and an EF less than 35%, you can put a defibrillator in someone. You want to make sure that when you make that decision, that the patient has had at least three months of goal-directed medical therapy, and you want to make sure that you're at goal.
0: And As a throwback to our GDMT episode, at goal means three months of guideline-directed medical therapy. So good doses of beta blockers, mineralocorticoid receptor antagonist, or an ACE or ARB or angiotensin, receptor neprilysin inhibitor, and now we also have SGLT2s.
3: There's like so many new drugs. And what we're finding is patients are really responding well to these drugs. So the event rates that the trials used to show, they're, not, they're potentially not as high as they used to be.
0: Yeah, I really appreciate hearing that nuance because, right, we are in a different era. We have really good GDMT and maybe it can give us more motivation to maximize the doses that our patients can tolerate so maybe our patient might not even need an ICD.
1: Great. Now that we've covered all that ground on traditional ICDs and pacemakers... Lots of grounds. <laughs> <laughs> lots of grounds. I actually was really excited to hear about newer types of implantable cardiac devices like leadless pacemakers.
3: Leadless pacing is is also very cool. So imagine instead of having a um, a battery and a wire, you have a small... Device that's about the size of a bullet that goes directly into the right ventricle.
0: Wait, what? Directly into the right ventricle?
1: I know, right? Leadless pacing can be a good option for patients who aren't good candidates for traditional pacemakers. Or you know, you're not expecting
3: people to live. You know, a 95 year old with with um, with dementia who may have a hard time letting a pacemaker site heal. This is a great option for people.
1: Leadless pacing may be good for patients who are at high risk of infection or for patients with poor vascular access options, so people with occluded veins or think patients on dialysis.
0: Yeah, I'm glad we have more options for them. And I think we also heard about subcutaneous ICDs. What's all the buzz about sub-Q ICDs?
4: The device goes along the left lateral chest, along the mid-axillary line, and the lead is basically tunneled under the skin, and we use a tunneling device and tunnel it under the skin and place it next to the sternum. Everything in the subcutaneous space, the beauty of the device, as the name says, subcutaneous defibrillator. we do not invade the vascular space. So there are no leads traversing the venous system, which is excellent. Risk of infections goes down, complication rates go down too.
0: So yeah, so these devices definitely have lower rates of infections, but as Dr. Tamarisa warned us, they also have its limitations. So for example, subcutaneous ICDs, they can't pace, they can't do the cardiac pacing. Uh, it can only shock. So again, that's going to be a downside if a patient needs that pacemaker function or experiencing um, you know, a lot of VTAC and having a lot of shocks and can't do the ATP pacing.
1: It's actually really cool to hear about these newer technologies, and I'm just so excited to see kind of where they go and what other options we can offer our patients. And I think what I'm taking away from this is that pacemakers and ICDs are evolving technologies, and that there are probably options for patients that we aren't
0: aware of. So always good to ask our our electrophysiology colleagues. So let's cement this beast of a pearl. Big takeaway is that the number of leads and the anatomy of the pacemaker is going to help us understand that main indication. Why don't we do some retrieval practice? Because, you know, I'm a big fan of that. When you see in a one-liner someone with a single chamber pacemaker or a single lead, what are you thinking about, Aaron?
1: So a single chamber pacemaker, which we really don't see that often, is going to kick in uh, when the heart rate falls too low.
0: Great. What about when you see dual chamber pacemaker?
1: So it's going to help bypass the AV node, and it's going to be helpful for patients who have high degree or symptomatic AV block. And on top of that, it can kick in just like a single chamber lead when the heart rate falls too low.
0: Nice. And then lastly, what if you see status post CRT or annoyingly biventricular pacing?
1: <laughs> <laughs> so CRT actually has three leads, Yes, and it's going to be for those patients with EF less than or equal to 35% who also have dysynchrony between the ventricles which we're going to see when we look at the ECG and see that left bundle branch block. Now, let me turn the tables and yes. quiz you on ICDs. Go for it. So <laughs> what do we think about when we see an ICD in someone's one-liner?
0: Right. So that person either has that ICD in place for secondary prevention, meaning they've already had a VT or VFib episode in the past, or for primary prevention, So this patient has a low ejection fraction despite really good GDMT for months and is at risk for one of those life-threatening arrhythmias. So also ICDs can do everything a pacemaker can, but also can deliver shocks and do anti-tachycardic pacing, which we learned basically delivers small currents to disrupt arrhythmias. Okay, Erin, so let's say you're admitting a patient to the hospital. You see in their medical record or even like on their chest that they have some implantable device, but you're not sure which one. What I didn't know before this episode is actually knowing what brand the pacemaker or ICD is can actually help our electrophysiology colleagues out a ton.
1: Yeah, especially if we're asking them to do a device interrogation, if we can figure out what type of implantable device the patient has, it really helps our cardiology colleagues know what equipment to bring to the bedside.
3: I don't know if you've ever seen, you know, the fellows running around with the the manuf- I just the worst consult to get is it's a device you don't know what brand, so you're bringing four of those with you, and it's it's inevitably two in the morning, and you're and you're running around.
0: Yep, we can save them from running around with four device interrogation machines. I can only <laughs> only imagine. Um, so where do we start? How can we figure out what device this is? The first
3: thing I would say is to ask the patient. <laughs> you would be amazed to know that. Patients know what they have, and and if they don't know, their kids may know, their, their, their partner may know. I mean, just ask them.
1: But then again, if these concepts are confusing for us, imagine they might be pretty confusing for patients, and we've all been burned before by a patient misremembering something.
2: Many people with a defibrillator will refer to it as a pacemaker, not really understanding the difference between them. So simply asking a patient what kind of device do you have in, uh, they may say the wrong thing. The second thing, they may have a card
3: with them that says exactly all the, all the device manufacturers, they actually give temporary cards and then they mail patient cards once they have an implant. So almost if they forget, ask them to look into their wallet.
1: Yeah, but, but what if they don't know or they don't have the card or that wallet is still at that good old outside hospital emergency room?
3: Oh, uh, <laughs> so real. <laughs> We've definitely been there. If you don't have that availability, a chest x-ray is your best friend. When you look at a chest x-ray, there are a couple clues as to what to know, as to, as to, as to how you can know what they have, okay? Um, the first clue. So the first thing you can decide is, is this a single chamber, dual chamber, or by V system?
0: Great. And then how do we tell the difference between if it's a pacemaker or an ICD, right? Like ICDs can do everything a pacemaker can but both can have one lead or two leads or three leads. And how do we tell the difference between if it's a pacemaker or an ICD?
1: Yeah, great question, Shreya. So this is where the size of the leads is actually really important. If you look at an x-ray, an ICD is gonna have a thick coil at the end, whereas a pacemaker lead will be thin all the way through.
0: Hmm, I have to say this didn't really stick obviously until like I saw the images and there's a really great recent reading room bite that we just did that'll help kind of cement it. We'll link that in the show notes.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely check that out. Also, if you can't tell who the manufacturer of a pacemaker is simply by looking at the chest x ray, we learned about two cool free apps pacemaker ID and cardiac management device finder, where you can take a picture of the chest x ray on your phone and the app will tell you the manufacturer based on how it appears.
0: Ah, so neat. Okay. And by the way, like we have no conflicts of interest with these apps, these are just the ones that the electrophysiology experts told us they use all the time. So, Um, but I'm glad we have that app. I definitely can see myself using that in the future. All right, so let's summarize this quick pearl on figuring out what type of pacemaker or ICD our patients have. So it's a good idea to just start off by asking the patient, especially if they have a card with the brand name and the type. And then the other way is to uh, look at the number of leads on the x-ray and then also to see if it has that thick coil at the end of the lead to indicate it's an ICD. Just a quick word from our sponsor. We all want to eat healthier, but let's be honest between our busy schedule and the endless prep and cleanup, it feels kind of out of our reach. You know, we often are aiming for better nutrition, but end up compromising for quick fixes that are anything but healthy. Now, imagine a different scenario. Picture a day where you're coming home to gourmet, nutritious meals that are ready in just two minutes. With Factors, that is possible. Factors delivers delicious, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals right to your door ready to heat in just two minutes, giving you over 35 weekly options to choose from, from Calorie Smart to Protein Plus to Keto. And don't forget, they have 60 plus add-ons for an extra boost from breakfast to midday bites. So you're not spending all your time and money in the hospital's <laughs> cafeteria. So no prep, no mess, just real mouthwatering meals tailored to fit your schedule and dietary needs. With fact, you're not just saving time, but you're elevating your meal game without the hassle of cooking head to factormeals.com slash 50 Use the code Coriam50 to get 50% off. That's the code Coriam50 at factormeals.com slash 50
1: Okay, so let's return to that patient we're admitting to our internal medicine service with a cardiac pacing device. Now we've figured out how do we identify the device they have. But then the next question is, when should we consult electrophysiology?
2: We get called all the time for device interrogations because a patient is admitted with a device in place and the sort of knee-jerk reaction is, well, the device is there, we should interrogate it uh, without really a specific question.
0: You know, I think one of the reasons why is that we often have a blind spot in that we don't realize that every person with an implantable device sort of is already being monitored for anything major, even without a formal interrogation.
2: Recognize that patients with a defibrillator or a pacemaker are under close monitoring by their electrophysiologist, which nowadays includes remote device monitoring that sends us regular reports.
1: We asked Dr. Cooper to tell us how these consult conversations go.
2: So our first question is, well, what what is the question? How can we be helpful rather than just go through an exercise with no purpose? And so they, you know, if the patient had syncope, sure, was an arrhythmia, did an arrhythmia occur. That's that's very easy and it's our pleasure. If they say, well, the patient's just not been feeling well, well, you know, that that it's unlikely that a device interrogation is going to give you additional information beyond what you'll already have uh, acquired in the form of an EKG. For example, let's say someone has new atrial fibrillation. Um, you don't need a device interrogation to detect that. In fact, if their device doesn't have an atrial lead, then it won't know that atrial fibrillation is occurring at all. For example, a single chamber ICD with a lead in the right ventricle will not be aware that atrial fibrillation is occurring.
0: Oh man, that is really good reinforcement back from Pearl One. Thinking about the anatomy of a traditional implantable device. Say there's only one lead in the ventricle. It's not going to tell us about what's happening up in the atrium, right? I think the other thing that can help us ask more effective consult questions is also just understanding what that device interrogation is going to tell us and what it's not going to tell us.
2: Interrogation of the pacemaker will have two purposes. One, to make sure the leads in
0: the pacemaker are functioning
4: normally.
1: So what Dr. Cooper is saying is that the interrogation tells us about the device's function, what it's programmed to do, what part of the heart the device is sensing and pacing as well as a check-in on the device's battery life.
2: And number two, to see if there's anything in the tachycardia log to suggest that coincident with the syncope event, they had a fast rhythm. But it would have to be extremely fast to cause syncope. Rapid atrial fibrillation, even in the 180s, 190s, 200, usually is not fast enough to cause fainting. All of these devices have event logs where you can go back and see how often is
3: a patient pacing? How often are they in AFib? How long are the AFib episodes? Are they having episodes of VT? Are they having PVCs? How many PVCs are they having?
0: So that event log, yes, it's a wealth of information, but also understand it has its limitations, right? It's not going to tell you everything that happened to the patient. That event log will only tell you the things the device is programmed to record and do. It's
2: important to recognize that there could have been an arrhythmia that fell outside the bounds of the programming of the defibrillator. What if the patient had VTAC? at 195 beats per minute, the defibrillator programmed at 200, for example, wouldn't detect it and wouldn't report it unless it was programmed with a a reporting zone where that fast rate fell into a zone that the defibrillator was told to save that event in its memory and or treat it.
1: This means that an unremarkable or normal interrogation doesn't necessarily mean that the electrical system of the heart is normal.
0: Yeah. So I guess, you know, given that device interrogations can have limitations, I mean, they're pretty good, but knowing what we know, I guess when should our antennas go up a bit, that the device interrogation for one of our patients might be missing something important.
1: Yeah. Great question, Treya. Dr. Cooper gave us a great example when we sat down with him of just that. He was taking care of this patient who had cardiac sarcoidosis and complete heart block and they came in because they had been feeling really lightheaded. The patient had an ICD placed, and their symptoms got better.
2: The patient did well for a number of years, and she then reported that she said, you know, I've had a couple of these spells that feel a lot like before you put my first pacemaker in. And the device interrogation was benign. The leads were fine. The thresholds were good. There were no arrhythmias in the device logs. But my antenna went up. Because I said, that's, that's not right. If you feel like you're having lightheaded spells and you say they are very reminiscent of your previous ones, there's a problem. There can be an issue with the wires. The wires, the leads from pacemakers and defibrillators are the weakest link of these systems. They over time can get damaged. The insulation can rub away. And those problems can be intermittent. You may do a full interrogation and see nothing wrong And yet there is a problem that is an intermittent problem that you were not able to detect at that moment. You need to further investigate. A negative, normal interrogation does not mean that there isn't a problem. And in that particular patient, we actually um, gave her a heart monitor to take home. And sure enough, she had further episodes, and she had both loss of ventricular capture events and over-sensing with inhibition of pacing. And she, we told her, we saw that. We said, come right to the emergency room. She came in. And sure enough, one of her leads had an insulation break in it that intermittently was allowing current to escape out the side of the lead and not being fully delivered to the heart, and was also when she moved her arm, and she had periods of asystole that, in fact, were exactly like the type of rhythm she had before her first device was put in. So take a patient's complaints seriously and recognize that the story is not over with a device interrogation. If you have a story that is worrisome, in particular lightheaded spells or fainting spells, that's the biggest red flag you could have that there may be an issue.
0: Wow. Uh, What a great patient story. I think we all need these stories to keep us humble. I think the takeaway for me is asking myself, you know, what is this device programmed to sense and, and to treat? And more specifically, what heart rates and arrhythmias is a device programmed to capture in the event log? And what's on the event log and if it correlates to any of the patient's symptoms?
1: The other thing we get from a device interrogation that we didn't talk about yet is the pacemaker mode, which is really going to feel like a bunch of random letters. One way to keep all these pacemaker modes straight is to, to use the mnemonic PACERS, which we heard about courtesy of Dr. Andy Locke.
0: Yeah, and we had to cut it out for a time. But we put it in our show notes and thought it'd be better also in the infographic as a way to like pull up on rounds and work through the mode settings with, with your team and kind of see it all laid out there nicely.
1: So let's change gears to a scenario we unfortunately find ourselves in at least a few times a year. It's that patient who has a pacemaker or ICD and you get a call from the micro lab, positive blood cultures.
4: One thing that uh, it's like, uh, you know, you go to bed every day thinking, I hope this device doesn't get (laughs) infected. If anything gives us gray hair, the bacteremias give us the gray hair. So... As many as uh, one in twenty patients um, uh, basically will have a CIED, you know, implantable defibrillator or pacer device infection over the next three years. So you implant a device today. For the next three years, you tell patients oh, the risk of infection is always going to be there. One in twenty, and um, more than sixty thousand uh, patients actually uh, develop an infection per year. You know, in this country, that's the number. It's a huge number.
1: Wow. That is a huge number, 1 in 20. One way that we try to
3: reduce lead complications such as infection is to not put devices in people that really don't need them. So that's probably the best thing.
0: Yes, and this might be a good time for some spaced repetition back to Pearl 1 where we talked about these newer devices, right? Erin, you had talked about the leadless pacemakers and subcutaneous ICDs that have lower risk of device-related infections and maybe better for patients who are high-risk for infections.
1: Classic Shreya Trivedi, coming in (laughs) with that space-based repetition. You're always putting those cognitive learning theories Uh, in action.
0: uh, I am very, very guilty. Huge, huge nerd when it comes to that.
1: (laughs) Okay, so with all that in mind, let's jump in and talk about how to manage patients with devices who develop bacteremia.
3: So any type of bacteremia, we have to be involved. This commonly gets overlooked, and in fact, what we normally see is when we're vetting these like uh, MRI requests in in infected patients that have devices, we usually say, oh, by the way, this patient was bacteremic with this infection. And they're trying to figure out the the source of the infection with the MRI. But we're like, oh, shoot, we should be involved.
1: So I feel like I knee-jerk consult infectious disease in these types of cases, but I don't always find myself reaching out to electrophysiology right away. And what we learned from our experts is that it's wise to get both ID and EP involved early on.
3: Taking out a device is a big deal. You know, I say taking out a device like it's easy. It's a really big deal. Um, One percent risk of a serious complication. You know, having a cracked chest or death. It's never really
0: an emergency, but it could be an urgency to get that device out. Well, one percent risk of serious complication when removing a device—that is much higher than I thought. The thing that
3: increases the the risk of the device extraction when it's transvenous is that these leads in the body actually fibrose to the veins and to the heart. So when you pull them out, you literally could lacerate or tear the, the superior vena cava, the right atrium, the right ventricle, You know, the, the IVC we sometimes perforate.
1: Ugh. Pacemaker extraction involves literally pulling on the leads that are fibrose to patients' vessels. That definitely sounds like a high bleeding risk.
0: Yeah. I, like, I feel like I can't get out the image of like fibrose vessels and someone trying to like take out leads from it. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess if pacemaker extraction is a big deal, do all pacemakers need to be taken out in a patient who's bacteremic?
3: The way we think about this is, so if there is bacteremia, does a patient have persistent bacteremia or uh, do they have bacteremia and now it's better? In the case of persistent bacteremia, pretty much irrespective of the, de- the bug, if you've dealt with the source, but you still have it, you have to assume the device is infected. So the device will have to come out.
0: Okay. Persistent bacteremia, device out. And just so we're on the same page, we're defining persistent bacteremia as two or more days of positive blood cultures. What about transient bacteremia though? This is like maybe the blood cultures cleared within a day or so.
3: In situations where patient's bacteremic, they have a source, you get rid of the source and they've cleared their cultures. It then comes down to what was the bug? There's complex algorithms, but the way I think about it is, was this bug staph or not? Staph, even if you've cleared bacteremia with staph, it's so sticky, you have to extract the device because you will never get cure, okay? Some strep species, gram negatives, if you've had a you have source control and you've had a good response, maybe or maybe not extract the device. fungemia you usually have to extract the device.
1: So the teaching point here is that if the bacteremia clears quickly, the decision of whether or not to remove the device is really based on what's causing the infection. With things like staph aureus or fungi, being more virulent, and then pushing our team to consider device extraction.
0: Right. And of course, there's also like other factors to consider, right? Like patient factors, like if the patient's immunocompromised or not can definitely impact that decision.
1: But wait, one of of my questions that came up when we were talking to Dr. Locke was, what happens when the device needs to get removed, but the patient's dependent on that device?
0: Yeah, I was wondering that too. Like, you know, there's some patients who are like 100% pacer-dependent.
3: And we put a temp. You'll hear the term temporary screw-in lead or temporary screw-in system. What that is is it's a, it's a real pacing lead that goes from the skin in you know into the vein, and we actually place it exactly how we would place a normal you know, pacing lead. So I mean, you'll see a dressing over it, and that will provide someone with pacing until they have a reimplant. Typical duration is usually at least seventy-two hours. Or if there's endocarditis or some other strange you know, persistent infection, we can wait up to two weeks long.
0: Got it. Okay, so much learning happening here. So if I were to summarize what we're taking away from this pearl is that basically anyone who comes in bacteremic and has an implantable device, we should really get EP and infectious disease involved early to really have that discussion about if extraction is required or not. Come on, it's a huge deal, right? It can carry up to a 1% mortality. With persistent bacteremia, where blood cultures are positive for two or more days, yes, definitely device should be taken out. And then with transient bacteremia, say with staph or fungi, we're more likely to take it out assuming that the pacemaker is seeded with these highly virulent bugs. Okay, so transitioning to our final pearl and probably the most important topic is end-of-life care in patients with a pacemaker and ICD. And Aaron, you had a pretty memorable story with this earlier this year.
1: <laughs> yes, this, this question came up in one of my IC rotations earlier this year. There was a patient on the floor who was actively dying and had transitioned to comfort measures only. The, the team down there had wanted to deactivate the ICD to prevent the patient from getting shocked. So I got this call. It was the middle of the night and I tried reaching out to cardiology, but they were busy in the emergency department and weren't able to help immediately.
0: Oh, so what did, what did you do, Aaron?
1: Well, I was initially confused about you know, exactly what to do. I, I asked around to find a magnet. And then honestly, I, I watched a YouTube video on how to deactivate oh, nice. the ICD. <laughs> I was able to figure out how to, how to use the magnet, but I, I was pretty worried about how to advise the patient and their family members who were at the bedside about what to expect once I deactivated it. And I had so many unanswered questions myself. How does the magnet actually work? And how's the patient going to feel once the device is deactivated?
0: Oh, all of that. All that really resonates. I think I've had all those same questions.
1: And before we dive into this, one thing we wanted to say up front is that, yeah, patients are going to make different decisions about whether or not they want their devices turned off at the end of life. And all of those feelings and decisions are valid. As a heads up, we're just trying to give example scenarios that might come up to help us solidify our own frameworks on how these end-of-life discussions might differ in patients with different devices.
2: But it is important to dive in deeper in terms of what the patient's wishes truly are. Most people would agree that they don't want to, quote, be a vegetable on a ventilator. And when people say they want to be DNR, that's usually the first thing that comes to mind. And most people are somewhat uniform in that regard. If there's no chance for a neurologic recovery, nobody would want to be kept alive on a ventilator. But that's very different from having ventricular fibrillation and being shocked back within 10 seconds and being exactly the same as you were right before with no neurologic or other consequences. And so if you were to describe to the patient what that would be like, many patients who thought they would want their defibrillator turned off or they want to be DNR, they're, oh, no, no, I, that's okay.
1: Hmm. I've never really thought about it that way. Even though the shock from an ICD might seem similar to other resuscitation efforts, especially with the shock. It's actually quite different, especially in terms of the patient's risk of brain injury and chance of returning to their baseline.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Getting shocked by an ICD for 10 seconds for a V-fib is very different than multiple rounds of CPR, epi, AMEO, and all that. Ugh.
1: Yeah. But let's say someone is dying and does not want shocks. How does that work?
2: usually as somebody is passing, there is a risk that that person may go into ventricular fibrillation as a terminal rhythm, and they may get shocked at a time that that's not what we would want. So typically, we would want to turn off a defibrillator before the patient is fully passed so that their passing is as peaceful as possible and not punctuated by defibrillator shocks, whether the patient is Uh, cognitively aware that that's going on, or family members are at the bedside and can see the body jolt. It's not a pleasant experience and certainly not necessary. It's important to recognize, though, that defibrillators can be deactivated without the need for electrophysiology, without the need for a programmer. A strong magnet that is placed over a defibrillator directly against the skin or the clothing uh, will trip a magnetic switch in the defibrillator while the magnet is in place, That will basically turn off the detection of tachyarrhythmias and turn off the tachycardia treatments, including shocks.
0: Wow. So I guess all you need is you learned the hard way, Aaron, is a strong magnet to turn off that shock function from the defibrillator.
2: Yeah, that's a strong
1: magnet and a good YouTube or podcast clip. Uh,
0: (laughs) I'm sorry, Aaron. (laughs) All right. So switching gears, uh, let's talk about pacemakers. How do pacemakers differ at the end of life?
1: Yeah, and I I guess what I'm curious about too is does a pacemaker need to be turned off?
2: If a patient's family or a patient requests that, then it's important to educate them on that fact that really the pacemaker is not going to make a difference. And recognizing that a pacemaker cannot make a patient immortal. It will not be able to continue to keep the heart beating if other factors are not also um, uh, going on, meaning if the heart is starved for oxygen, if the pH falls below a certain level, if the potassium goes rises above a certain level, then the heart muscle starts to die and you cannot keep that heart muscle alive simply by pacing it. And so in patients, for example, who are extubated in an ICU setting or who have severe hypotension despite maximal pressors, turning off the pacemaker will in no way meaningfully change that patient's remainder of that patient's life or leaving it on, likewise, will have no meaningful effect. If they're dying, they're dying from hypotension, ischemia to the heart, the heart muscle will die, and the pacemaker, although it will still deliver electrical pulses, will no longer be able to keep the heart beating. You will see pacemaker spikes with no QRS complexes, no heartbeat going on. And so, in most scenarios of end of life, turning off a pacemaker does not really play a role.
1: That's an important learning point, that pacemakers do not need to be turned off when a patient's dying. But what would happen if one of our patients asked us for it to be turned off? Can we even do that?
2: If a pacemaker were to be, quote, turned off, meaning you literally turn off the pacing functions, then what would then happen to the patient would depend on how much they rely on that pacing. If they pace um, on rare occasion, then there would be no immediate effect. If they pace all the time, but their underlying heart rhythm is just slow in the 30s or 20s, then they're not gonna pass away when you turn off the pacemaker, but they're gonna feel lousy. They're gonna feel lightheaded or or faint or, or, or nauseated or weak, and they may suffer more by turning off that pacemaker because it's actually palliative for them to have a heart rate of 60 as opposed to 25. If they are pacemaker dependent, meaning they have a heart rate of zero, when you turn off the pacemaker, then they will pass away immediately because they'll have no heartbeat. That does raise for many physicians or healthcare providers some ethical concerns because they would equate that interaction with physician assisted suicide. And there have been many ethical committees and discussions and publications about this, about what is the difference, if any, between an implanted pacemaker that's keeping a person alive And a ventilator that's keeping a person alive because they're very different in terms of how we perceive them. A pacemaker may have been implanted for 10, 15, 20 years, and it's invisible to the eye because it's under the skin and it's internal. In fact, we almost consider it incorporated as part of the patient. But it is an electrical, man made device that is keeping the patient alive. It's just not visible. A ventilator. Uh, is obviously much more visible and much more invasive in a way. I have myself personally evolved in my thought process. I was very uncomfortable early on in my career with the concept of turning off a pacemaker in somebody who requests it. Um, And uh, I've evolved over time to recognize that it truly is an artificial means, even though it may have been present for a long time, of keeping somebody alive who's pacer-dependent. And I have, in fact, on a couple occasions turned off a pacemaker in a patient uh, who requests it or whose family members request it. One notable example was a patient who had a massive stroke, a devastating neurologic injury, but whose organs were fine. His heart was beating, his kidneys were functioning. He was breathing on his own. He was not intubated. He was lying there in bed, breathing fine, but he had no uh, cognitive function left because of a devastating stroke and was in bed. And who knows how long he would live. The family decided, first of all, to not put a feeding tube in and not feed him. But in addition, he was pacemaker dependent and they requested that the pacemaker be turned off. And um, that is something that I did after a long discussion with the family.
0: What a profound story. There's just so much in there.
1: Yeah. It's, it's really helpful to hear his perspective and how that thought process has changed over time on this issue. So what are you taking away from this,
0: Shreya? Well, a lot. But one big one is that end-of-life situations with a pacemaker can vary a lot. And so I think I need to be thinking about you know, why is this pacemaker in this patient? What's it doing and how dependent are they on it? What about you, Aaron? What are you taking away?
1: So what I'm coming away with is that pacemakers actually do not need to be turned off, and in fact, it likely would make the patient feel worse if they have a slow heart rate. But if turning off the pacemaker is in line with their wishes, it's best to loop in ethics or palliative care to help with that really complex decision-making. And then lastly, with ICDs, we can use a magnet to turn it off so the patient doesn't feel shocks at the end of their life.
0: And with that end-of-life discussion, we are at the end of this episode... We thank you so much for for your time. We hope you learned a ton. And if you found it helpful, please share it with your team, your colleagues, give it a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you podcast. It really does help people find us, tweet us, leave us a comment on our website, Instagram or Facebook page. Thank you so much to Dr. Pamela Tung and Dr. Saima Karim for reviewing this episode. Thank you to Dr. Shabatia for the audio editing and as well to Dr. Kathy Sassan for the accompanying graphics.
1: This episode was made as part of the digital education track at BIDMC. Thanks to all our great educators and mentors
0: also this episode was recorded in part of acp massachusetts earlier this year we love hearing your feedback emails at hello at coreampodcast.com opinions expressed are our own and do not represent the opinions of any affiliated institutions